You can turn with me today to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We just sang a song that calls for Emmanuel to come. Does anyone know what the name Emmanuel means? How did you know? Wow. Yes, God with us, Emmanuel. In the Old Testament, I'm getting a signal here. I did it again, Ken. I did it again. I did it again. I keep blaming the sound room for not turning up my mic, and then I realize I haven't turned it on. How's that? Hello? All right. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. We've been singing about the anticipation of Emmanuel all throughout the Old Testament. That's the theme that we see, that people are looking for a coming king. And then when the Old Testament closes, a period of 500 years of silence begins. And then when we turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, we see those promises being fulfilled. I want to read beginning in verse 18, Matthew chapter 1. We'll read down through verse 23 this Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Christ Jesus was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. At Christmas, we celebrate the grand miracle of all of history, that God becomes a man and dwells among us. And really, this mystery, this, this miracle, lies at the very center of the message of the Bible, at the very center of the history of the universe, actually that God dwells on earth in bodily form. No other worldview has anything like the incarnation of the Son of God. It is uniquely and profoundly a Christian concept that all human attempts to manufacture in religion fall short. In fact, many cultures and many religions elevate humans to the level of God. That's actually quite a common thing. Egyptians considered their pharaohs to be divine. The Romans elevated their Caesar to a place of divinity. But in the Bible, we see God lowering lowering himself to the level of humanity. And not just as a human, but a lowly human, a servant. And he is laid in a feeding trough for animals. This child in Bethlehem is God with us. In his essay, The Grand Miracle, C.S. Lewis writes this, The Christian Story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. 
And if you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable human things which Christianity shares with all other systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian. As we consider this grand miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God this Christmas season, I want us to consider this morning just how miraculous it was and just how necessary the incarnation was. As we consider God dwelling among his people throughout the story of Scripture, we discover why Jesus had to come to earth as a man. And this morning, I want to do something a little unique. So I'm not going to spend most of my time in the New Testament. I'm going to actually look back in the Old Testament, and we're going to trace the theme of God dwelling among his people. And as we look at that theme throughout Scripture, we see it culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. As we consider this theme, it begins at the very beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, when God creates man. He has fellowship, perfect unity and fellowship with his people. God wants to dwell with his people. But if you know the, gar- the story of the Garden of Eden, mankind falls into sin. Adam and Eve disobey the Lord, and the curse of sin spreads to all of humanity. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, we read that God drives out man from the garden, and he places the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away, turned every away to guard the way to the tree of life. From the very beginning, the opening pages of Scripture, we see God wants to dwell among his people, but there's something that keeps that from happening, that our own sin separates us from God. We see his desire to dwell with us, and yet our sin separating us. As we continue following this story throughout the, New, the Old Testament, as his chosen nation Israel is called out of Egypt, we see God's presence leading them. And how do we see God's presence leading the children of Israel through the wilderness? It's as a cloud. It's a pillar of fire guiding them, we read in Exodus chapter 13. When the children of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God's presence descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud as a thick cloud envelops the mountains with thunders and lightnings and earthquakes. But as we see, whenever God's presence comes down, people fear, people run away, people hide. They're afraid of even the very voice of the Lord. Why is that? Well, God is so holy and so righteous that his perfection actually drives out imperfection. That his holiness causes unholiness to tremble. And that's why if we were to come face to face with God, we would fall down on our face as if we were dead. And we see that all throughout scripture. What does Isaiah say in in his book? Woe is me, I am undone. In scripture, those who see the presence of God expect death to come. After Mount Sinai, when God gives the law, and we know what happens after that, the children of Israel make a golden calf and worship a false idol. After that episode, Israelites sin against God. God tells them in Exodus chapter 33, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. He has a desire to dwell among his people, but because of the presence of sin, There are times in Israel's history where the loving thing for God was to separate himself. Because if he were to be among them in their rebellion and in their sin, it would lead to their destruction. And so God wants a relationship with his people. God wants to dwell among his people and be their God. But God and sinful man cannot be in the same place at the same time. They cannot share space. 
And we learn of a term in rabbinic tradition called the Shekinah glory. Perhaps you've heard that term before, and it's used in terms of the Old Testament when the cloud of God's holy presence would come down. That word Shekinah really means he caused to dwell. It's talking about his dwelling presence. And whenever we see the Shekinah glory in Scripture, we're seeing God's presence among men, but yet whenever this glory comes down, humanity must get away. And while we see God dwelling among his people, we see him putting safety measures in place, still separating him between the distance between God and man. How do we see this? Well, first of all, as Israel is walking through the wilderness, God dwells in the tabernacle. When God called Israel as his special people, he led them through the wilderness to the promised land. And as they journeyed, it was God's desire to dwell among his people. And so he gives instructions to Moses to build a tabernacle, which means sanctuary or dwelling place. God, Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle where in, in which I can dwell. God wanted to be in and among his people. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25, if you can. Exodus chapter 25. It's here in Exodus chapter 25 that God gives Moses the instructions to the tabernacle. And in these instructions, we see why he wants to build this dwelling place, this tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25, look with me in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? that I may dwell in their midst. You see the persistence of God that, God, that mankind is so sinful and so rebellious and they reject him and betray him again and again, but yet God persistently says, no, I want to be among my people. I want to dwell among my people. So make me a tabernacle. Make me a sanctuary. Skip ahead to chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29, beginning in verse 43. Exodus chapter 29, 43, says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Again, this desire for God to dwell among his people. And why does he have this desire? Because he is their God. And he wants them to know that he is their God. And so he puts his presence among the people so that there is no mistaking, this God is our God. That it would be clear that they were his. He is associating himself with this group of people. This is the love of God. And we see this heart of God all throughout Scripture. God wants to dwell with you. God wants to be close to you. And why? Because he wants to show you who he is. He wants you to know that he is the Lord, your God. He's not a distant God. He is a God who wants to be close to you so that you may know him. But remember our dilemma. God wants to dwell among his people, but our sin separates us from him. And when God's Shekinah glory arrives, man has to leave. So what do we find in the tabernacle? 
We find meticulous provisions and instructions to allow God's presence to dwell among his people while still separating his holiness from their sinfulness. And in this tabernacle, this dwelling, a curtain hung separating the holy place from the holy of holies. There was ritual purification and stipulations limiting who could approach. God was dwelling among them, but God and man could not be in the same place at the same time. Look with me ahead in Exodus chapter 40. This is a passage when the, the tabernacle is finally being constructed. This tent structure, this temporary dwelling for the presence of God. Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 32. And when they went, to the, they went to the, into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the, uh, of the court so that Moses finished the work. Then the cloud, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. There's the Shekinah glory. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now look at verse 35. What has to happen when God's presence enters? Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So when the glory came in, Moses had to get out. He could not enter. Why could he not enter? Because God was there. And so while we see God's desire to have his glory dwell among his people, mankind cannot be in the same place at the same time as the very presence of God. God dwells among his people, but there's still distance. And that's necessary because we're sinful, we're unholy. We cannot stand before the holy presence of God. As we trace the story of Israel's history, we find them settling in the promised land and God dwells in a temple. King David reigns over the nation. He has a desire to, to create and build for God a temple, but it's appointed to his son Solomon to build this temple. This is not a transportable tent like the tabernacle, but a glorious and permanent structure for God's presence to dwell among his people in their promised land. This temple was to be a house, and this is how it's described when it's first beginning its design and construction. We read in 1 Kings chapter 6, Now the Lord came to the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you were to walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to my father David, verse 13, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. God's desire to dwell among his people persists and continues. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6 is when Solomon is finally consecrating the temple. This glorious, majestic structure is finally complete. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we see him praying to God and consecrating this temple for his glory. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18, we read this. Solomon asks a question. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, let, how much less this house that I have built. God's desire, God desires to dwell among his people, to be identified with them and reveal his glory to them. And Solomon even marvels at this. How can such a beautiful, a magnificent and, and majestic God dwell with man on earth? But yet again, just like the tabernacle in the wilderness, when the Shekinah glory entered the temple, everyone had to 
leave. Look, look with me in Second Chronicles chapter 7, the next chapter, beginning verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. God enters, man leaves. How can man be reconciled to God if we can never share the same space? How can this dilemma be solved? How can God's desire to dwell among his people be fully realized? How can our desire to be with God be fully realized? We see God's desire, but yet we see this limitation. We see this distance because we're so sinful, because we, we are unholy. We cannot be in God's presence. And God dwelling among his people is still shielded and guarded. And here we begin to see the miracle of Christmas. We saw God dwell in a tabernacle. We saw God dwell in the temple. But now on Christmas morning, we see God dwell in human flesh. And in our passage that we read at the beginning in Matthew chapter 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Up until this point, deity and humanity could not be combined. Sin has separated us. But when the Son of God is born, what do we see? We see God and man sharing the same space. We see God and man unified. And his very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And in fact, if we turn to the first chapter of John, we read these glorious words. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That glory that evoked so much fear and so much dread in the Old Testament. That glory that drove the priests out of the tabernacle and out of the temple are displayed in the man Christ Jesus. The word became flesh, and God once again dwells among his people. And it's no coincidence when we see how Jesus describes his own body. In John chapter 2, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection, and what imagery does he use to foretell that death and resurrection? A temple. John chapter 2, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why does he call the, his body a temple? Because his body is the dwelling place of God. The body of Jesus is the temple of the glory of God, and man and God are now sharing the same space in the person of Jesus Christ. In a perfect, sinless body, Born of a virgin, God takes on human flesh. God dwells with us in Jesus Christ. And we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in fact, this is what we sing of in our Christmas carols this time of year. You ever stop? One, thing, one, one 
uh, disadvantage of Christmas carols is often we don't think about the words that we're singing. We have them memorized and we sing them all the time, but we don't really meditate on the magnificent truth that we find there. I love the words of one of my favorite Christmas carols, O Holy Night. We read, O long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We sing the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Have you ever noticed the doctrine in that song? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Why would God go to such great lengths to dwell among his people? We see this traced throughout the entire Old Testament. He dwells in the tabernacle. There's still separation. There's still sin. He dwells in the, ta- in the temple. There's still separation. The, t- the curtain is still there. When the glory comes down, mankind leaves. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God dwelt among men by becoming a man. And why did Jesus do this? He did this so that he could take on the very thing that has separated us from him from the beginning of creation. He lived a perfect life and he took on sin and death upon himself by dying on a cross. And at that moment, as we saw when we were going through the Gospel of Mark, that the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in half from top to bottom. God dwells among men so that men could dwell with God. Jesus was the Son of Man so that we could be the sons of God. The temple of Christ's body became the way in which we could be once again reunited with our God. In fact, because Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, Those who believe in Jesus for salvation, what are they called? What is the church called who are saved by Jesus Christ? The temple of the Holy Spirit. We are called the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And there, in 2 Corinthians, he he draws a straight connection all the way back in the Old Testament. He quotes a verse that speaks of the tabernacle and the temple and God's desire to dwell among his people and be their God and them be his people. And he uses that language about the tabernacle and the temple to describe us. Those saved by him. And why is it that we can be called the temple of God? It's because we are the body of Christ. God dwelt among men as a man, and through his death and resurrection, we are united to him. In the Old Testament, we see the temple as the dwelling place of God. In the Gospels, we see Jesus' body as the temple, the dwelling place of God. And in the New Testament church, we see his people 
become his body, the dwelling place of God. And mankind is reunited with God only through the work of Jesus Christ. Why is it that we as sinful people who would be driven out of the holy presence of God can be called the temple of God and the body of Christ? Because something happened when Christ went to that cross and died for us in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God. That we are his body because we are clothed in his righteousness. The story of Christmas is the story of sinful people being wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That Christianity does not uphold a religion that says we, we, those, who are, those who are good, those who are moral, those who are upstanding can climb their way up to God. Now the story of Christmas is the story of a God who climbed down to us, who came to dwell among us as a human, and not just a human, but a lowly human, a servant. And not just a lowly human, but a lowly human who took upon him A death of humiliation. Death on a cross. God wants you to dwell with him. So much so that he came to dwell with us. And as the Christmas carol says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. There's the problem. That's what separates us from God. Our sin makes it impossible for us to dwell with him, but when he appeared, the soul felt its worth. God came down and dwelt among us and veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And God was pleased to dwell with men as a man. He is our Emmanuel. If you are to be united with God, you must be united to Christ the one who paid for your sins. We sing the other Christmas song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And the fourth verse there takes the incarnation of Christ and points to how important it is for us as believers where it says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, Abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. I think there is within every human heart a desire to be united with God. But at the same time, there is a desire to live for self, to live for sin, and sin and error pining. And it's because we have that sin nature that Christ had to make the first step that he had to come down, that he had to rescue us, that he had to tear the veil, that he had to fulfill the law that we couldn't fulfill, that he had to take on the curse that we could not pay, so that those who embrace Christ are clothed in his righteousness. As you celebrate the birth of Christ, remember that the baby in the manger was the temple of God, dwelling among you so that he might rescue all who place their faith and trust in him. This is the time of year where we celebrate God with us. Don't minimize it to just a cute story or a nativity scene or some Christmas carols that that you just sing because you haven't memorized and you don't think about the words. There's an incredible message for you. 
And if you've been wondering, why, why the big deal about Jesus? Why the big deal about Jesus coming as a baby? I hope today you see at least why as Christians we, we make a big deal of it. Because this is everything. Right? This is the grand miracle. If this did not happen, we're hopeless. If this has not happened, all we're doing this morning is just kind of going through the motions and figuring out life and trying to live as moral as we can. And it's, it's empty. It's meaningless. We'd be, of all people, most to be pitied. This is everything. The fact that God came down and dwelt among us so that we might be brought back to God. Our heart, our prayer for you is that if you have not embraced Christ, if you have not come to faith in the Son of God who lived for you and died for you and offers you his righteousness for the forgiveness of sins, that you would do that. That you would call on Christ to be your Savior. He came to dwell among you so that you could dwell with him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the incredible message of Christmas. Lord, we are astounded that you in your glory would humble yourself to such an extent. And Lord, the sin that separates us from your glorious presence was paid for on that cross so that we could be united to you. Lord, what an incredible privilege that we, as your church, are now your dwelling place. Help us, Lord, to be your hands and feet, even this Christmas season. We would continue on the ministry of your Son here on earth, as your children, as your family. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not yet believe in you, who has not yet placed their faith in what you have done for them, help them see your love in the Christmas story, and that they might call unto you for salvation and for forgiveness of sins.